0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Um, It's a privilege to be able to continue our series on marriage and family life. Um, This is the fourth uh, lecture on the series Marriage and Family Life. Um, If this is your, your first time here, Um, I think you'll be okay we're gonna get into talking about um, the meaning the meaning of problems within marriage and probably have an approach to problems uh, that might be a little bit new so um, you know if you're listening in online or or you're here um, I think this will be a very helpful understanding of the process of conflict and conflict resolution Um, I do think that there will be something that you can take from it that will be of benefit I always as I'm delivering this I always think to myself gosh I knew uh, I wish I knew this 13 years ago before I got married it would be very helpful (laughs) so um, so let's go ahead and um, and jump in um, if you remember, the very first time we spoke about marriage, we talked about the crowns and the robes that you received during the marriage ceremony. And the crowns both symbolized martyrdom, and they also symbolized a sense of royalty participating in the royal priesthood of God. But uh, for our purpose today, we're only taking the first part, which is martyrdom. Again, I want to remind you of what we talked about in the first time is that there are two paths given to us for salvation, monasticism and marriage. And these paths are given to us for salvation because they essentially do an important thing, which is they help us to relinquish self-will. They help us die to the old person and be born again in Christ. Now, You could be a monk living in the monastery, and you're very much self-driven by self-will. You do what you want, when you want it, how you want it. Nobody's telling you two ways about it. You could also be married and do what you want, when you want it, how you want it, and there's no two ways about it. So the path in itself isn't what saves us. It's our ability to take what comes to us to help us transform ourselves in order to be in the image and likeness of Christ. There are problems in monasticism, there are problems in marriage, and they're there for a reason. And they're not there so that they would drown us and that we would become depressed, overwhelmed, hopeless, and helpless. That isn't the point. So if there is a point, we'd like to know what is the point. Um, so this is kind of w- what I just uh, mentioned to you. Um a lot of the spiritual writings talk about the monastic life as an arena where the monastic, the monk, the nun uh, goes to war with the inner demons marriage is an arena and we talked about that Uh, my spouse is both a mirror and a blanket for me she reflects back to me my own uh, inadequacies, my own sinfulness It's only in that context of an intimate relationship that I see my selfishness, that I see my own shortcomings, I see my greed. It is that she is the other me who reflects to me my own image. So let's talk about this from a more clinical stance. Uh, John Gottman has done a lot of research in the past 30 to 40 years interviewing and evaluating hundreds if not thousands of couples and this is what he uh, discovered he discovered that with any couple there is a set number of solvable problems and a set number of unsolvable problems what do you think that percentage is in any given couple how much of their problems is unsolvable? And I'll define what unsolvable mean because I guess that would be a good question to ask, like what does it mean for a problem to be unsolvable? But let me just start off by asking you, how much of, not not you of course, because you have a perfect marriage, uh, I, I, just any given couple off the street What's the percentage of the unsolvable problems that this couple might have? Take a guess. Yes. Uh, Zero percent. percent. So so Henry's coming from a place of every problem has a solution. Research says no, that's not true. Okay, who else? 50-50. So 50% is solvable, 50% is unsolvable. Anybody else want to take a guess? Okay, 75 solvable. Okay, so uh, huh? so here's the research finding. So John Gottman says uh, 69% of problems within marriage are unsolvable problems. And only 31% are solvable problems. They are unsolvable mainly because of two things. One, it, personality traits and two, um, core values or core fundamental needs. So we'll talk about this. Uh, I wanna give you an example uh, of an unsolvable problem. And this, this is something I'm taking out of my own clinical practice, and I'll just change up some of the demographic and information so to maintain confidentiality. So a couple, Uh, with two children. One let's say is two years old and one is fairly fairly newborn, six months. And let's say the husband has aging parents on the East Coast. Let's say they live in Boston. And the husband says, when my parents are sick and they need me, I'm catching the first flight and I'm going to be there because they have nobody there for them, and I'm going to be there. And if my mother has a doctor's appointment, if my father needs me to figure out his finances, I'm going to be there. And his wife says, "Um, you are leaving me in high distress. I'm overwhelmed with the children, and you're leaving me, and this feels like you're abandoning me. And he says... You're putting more pressure on me than what I could bear. I'm telling you, I have aging parents who have nobody who need me. This is an example of an unsolvable problem. So whatever solution that you could come up with is going to fall short of what both of them really needs. Um, I like this quote. Um, so perhaps it isn't always the case that we are aiming at solving every single problem in our marriage and sometimes that could be the the illusion right? like you have a fight and you come to to the priest and you're like we're going to go sit with Abuna and my expectation is he's going to quote unquote solve this and even the priest can fall into this temptation of feeling like I need to solve their problem but sometimes problems are there by necessity not so that we can solve them but that they can change us I love this is I don't know if you guys have ever read the book um, man's search for meaning by the Holocaust survival Victor Frankl but there's a there's a, there's, a um, there's something that he says in this book he says when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. And so sometimes problems are there, not so that you can stand over them in victory, but that they can crush something that needs to die within me. And that's really important. But if according to research we all have a set of these unsolvable problems. what do we do with it it isn't fun it isn't comfortable and if you've ever sat with your spouse to talk about a topic that you've looped around many times right you know there's already a lot of tension there's already a lot of fear because you know very well that this is what John Gottman calls a gridlock that both of you are holding on to different positions for very good reason and there isn't a lot of room for budging there isn't a lot of room for compromise because you feel very strongly in opposing view, direction don't worry I will leave you with hope <laughs> okay so before we talk about um, Like, if we are going to approach problems in a a mindful, helpful ways, I want to talk about some of the unhelpful ways that we get into. Typically, um, problems, how we approach problems, uh, sometimes can have a negative cycle to it. And this cycle can look like um, we attack, blame, and then defend. And so w- what that looks like is, um, you know, um, wife is staying up, wait, waiting for her husband to come home, and he's supposed to come at nine, he comes late, uh, uh, and she says, uh, there you go again, you know, being inconsiderate, only thinking of yourself, right? And, and then so she starts with the attack, and then, and then he goes into defense, so he blames, he blames the situation, he blames other people, uh, maybe he blames her. Maybe if you weren't so critical and negative, I'd be home on time, right? And then she defends, right? The only reason why I'm critical and and, and, and because you are insensitive to my, my feelings, right? So there's tend to be this cycle of attack, blame, and defend. And sometimes we do something called uh, kitchen sinking. In other words, we pile things on because we're just so emotionally dysregulated. So we go, not only do you come late and you're insensitive, but you don't even help with this, and you don't do this, and you're the <laughs> And they call it kitchen sinking, like piling up the dishes. If you've ever walked up to the sink and there's like a mountain of dishes, you're so discouraged. You're like, oh my gosh, this is going to take forever, right? Um, the other thing that we do is that over time, we establish something called confirmation biases. In other words, I say to myself, my spouse um, is careless. And then I develop, I develop this belief about my spouse. And then I just kind of like scan to look for evidence to support this. And even if there's evidence to contradict this, I dismiss it. And then I just look for evidence to support this. And I go, uh aha, there's one See you are being careless you're being careless and not picking up our child on time you are being careless and just leaving this stuff the way it is confirmation biases and and then my spouse can say but what about this time and this time and this time and i could just dismiss it because i've i've established a belief about her and it's only comfortable for me to find those things that actually confirm that belief The other thing that we do is something called fundamental attribution error, which is um, if, if I show up late, it's circumstantial. It's traffic. If you show up late, it's because you're insensitive and you have poor time management. There's a character flaw in you. So I can, I, I can find grace to why I do what I do. You know, I, I didn't clean the house because I was busy, but you didn't clean the house because you're a slob and you, you don't care to actually help, right? So we call this fundamental attribution error. There's an error, there's a fundamental error in what you are attributing to the other person. Now, sometimes... This builds up, builds up, builds up, so that we have a really hard time talking about certain sensitive topics, topics around intimacy and sex and money and and in-laws. These things become really hot topics. And if we're already kind of having these negative cycles in our communication, we're kitchen sinking, we're using confirmation biases, we're fundamental attribution error, um This is making it really impossible to have helpful, constructive conversations. And by the way, this doesn't only extend to marriage. You could take this outside to work relationship, um, pastoral care, whatever it is. Wherever you get people together, uh, there lies a lot of dysfunction. Um, So here is something that is of immense importance. So uh, I'm going to read everything out to you if you can't see it because it's small. So if you, if you get a phone call from your wife saying, like, come home, I'm really upset, and I really, we really need to talk, you need to kind of replay uh, what I'm about to say before you have this conversation because I think it will be helpful. Um, I don't think that we pay attention enough to our physiological reaction during conflict here's something that I'm pretty sure most of us are not really aware of. Our resting heart rate, if you take an average 30-year-old male, an average 30-year-old female, the resting heart rate is 76 beats per minute for a male, 82 for a female. During conflict, John Gottman is reporting that their heart rate can increase to 165 feet per minute. So your heart is pounding. Adrenaline is pumping, and that only happens when you feel there's a threat. So here's the thing. In a conflict just between husband and a wife, your body is responding to it as if you were being mauled by a bear. Your, your body is responding exactly in the same way. The heart palpitation, the blood is released to all your your, your big muscles. Your arms are being flooded with blood. Your legs, why? That's, that, that's a evolutionary uh, primitive reason. It's to fight. It's to run. It's to protect yourself. Yes, and we're going to talk about that. So your body... Is essentially your blood pressure is increasing, adrenaline's uh, pumping, your heart rate is increasing. Um, you are probably um, in the worst condition to continue having the discussion uh, that you're meant to have. Oh, no, 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 it's, it's both, it's both. I just happen to have it on one side. Yeah, it's, it's a human reaction. Uh, the only distinct difference is the heart rate of a, of a man differs from a woman. But during escalation, during times when we feel a threat, the same phys- physiological reaction is happening. But I would say that probably the woman is able to regulate her emotions a bit better than, than a man can and we'll talk a little bit maybe more about that. Women just happen to be superior in all ways, and all things, it just, you just. Well, we could talk about this. It's gonna be okay, guys, it's gonna be okay. So here's, here's, here's what's happening, here's what's happening. In order for us to have a constructive conversation where information is flowing in and flowing out, in order for me to actually listen to you, take new information and integrate it into the information that I have, I have to be using my prefrontal cortex. In the state where I feel overwhelmed, what happens is my prefrontal cortex shuts down and my amygdala, that's the fire alarm of the brain system, of the nervous system, my amygdala gets triggered. So when our heart is beating fast and 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 we, our, our, the blood is pumping towards our arms and our legs, our adrenaline is, is flowing in, we're in our amygdala. And our amygdala only helps us to respond in fight, flee, or freeze. I talked to you about, about this a uh, few weeks ago where we talked about... Um, uh, stonewalling stonewalling when, 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 when one partner is mad and they're yelling and the other one is emotionally absent that's probably why they're in a freeze response they're so overwhelmed emotionally that the way they protect themselves automatically is to disconnect emotionally so what's happening is if we are it, the amygdala is hot we're in the midbrain and we're just in fight-flight-freeze response, uh, no constructive conversation is going to happen. Not, not, that's not, not going to happen. So um, I want to look at uh, a couple of things from Scripture, and then I want to look at some things from a clinical uh, psychological perspective. There are four verses which I feel are like the governing, uh, the governing kind of fence to doing this right, and I have them uh, up on the slide. Romans thirteen ten says, "Love does not harm, does no harm to a neighbor. Love does no harm to a neighbor." So if we're engaging in a conversation, that has to be our intention, is not to do harm, right? Sometimes, um, if I'm sitting in a session and a couple are, are, are fighting, they're not looking at each other, and we'll talk about that, and one person will say things that are just e- excruciating, excruciatingly painful, and the other person will walk out, and I'll say, what— what did you think was going, like, what was going on for you? How did you think your partner was going to react? They I said, I, I didn't think about how they were going to react. I just felt like I wanted to say that. And so, in other words, the preserving, preserving the no harm towards one's partner was not in the purview of the person. The other verse I want us to go through is in James 1.19, which says, Be swift to hear. Slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Romans twelve sixteen and seventeen. Do not be wise in your own opinion, and the last one in First Peter one fifteen. Be holy in all your conduct. So these are the rules to uh, having an argument with your spouse. Uh, do no harm, be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger, do not be wise in your own opinion, and be holy in all your conduct. This is how that translates uh, from more of a psychological therapeutic approach. If we want to do this in the most helpful way, I would say that this is it. Um, you could add to this, but I don't think you can take away from this. The first thing, so let's say you got this call, right? Your spouse calls you and says, I am so upset when you get home, we are having a talk, right? I need you to pull over the car and play listen to this before you go home. The first thing is evaluate your heart whether you're the wife in this case or the husband who's going to have the conversation, what is in my heart? If my heart is in a place of gratitude, of love, of humility, and I feel loving towards my spouse, loving and disappointed, loving and upset, I can move on with the conversation. If I have peace, if I have gratitude, if I could see the goodness in my spouse, I could move towards this conversation. If in my mind I only see the bad that they have done, the wrong that they have done, I'm not ready to have this conversation. I probably need to turn and to pray and to say, Lord, I'm being blinded by anger, by frustration, and I need your help because then having this conversation in that moment will probably not be constructive. The second thing I want to do is I want to be clear. I want to be clear about my objective. We already covered uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We talked about criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. And we said these things break down the relationship and irrev- inevitably contempt is the number one reason why people divorce, right? So if in my heart there's judgment, I'm looking down on my spouse, that is a clear sign you are not ready to talk. You need to do some, some cleaning of the heart before you have this discussion. I'll keep on repeating this again and again and again because it's so tempting you're like I want my spouse to know exactly how I'm feeling and I want to give it to them and I want them to know how much I'm hurting don't do it okay so if my goal then is to connect is to understand is to repair Part of it is we might be yearning for a conversation because we feel disconnected and I'm so open to correcting myself. Fantastic, let's have the conversation. I sense that there's an emotional disconnect. You're upset with me. I feel like maybe I've let you down. I'm open to talking about this because I'm also open to saying, oh my gosh, I, 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 I totally overlooked this. I am so sorry. I was so wrong in what I said um i want to do it better next time right i'm not going to say i'll never do that again but i want to say i i want to commit to doing it better next time so that's the second thing is be clear on your intention you could only destroy the person you're with so many times before the the relationship is beyond repair and so if you think like i'm angry so i'm just going to give it to them And they have to take it. I mean, they're my spouse. Where are they going to go? That's not going to be sustainable. The third third thing is, okay, so I've identified my heart is in a good place. I see the goodness in my spouse, and I'm upset, and I want to talk to my spouse about being upset. I'm going to start off with a soft startup. So a soft startup is I'm going to come from a place of um, need, needing something. It's one thing for me to say to someone, to say to my wife, you're inconsiderate, you come late, blah, blah, blah. It's another thing to say it would mean the world to me if you came on time. It would mean the world to me if you were able to show up for me in this way. I would really really love that and that's a need for me so I can take those like mumble jumble thoughts that are so critical and negative and I could transform them ask myself why does this matter and why do I need this and I might say when you show up on time it makes me feel like you really care for me and you really love me and that means the world to me and I think she's able to hear that a little bit better the fourth thing, and I just want to put so much emphasis on this, is to actually look at the person. Ar- uh, Archie talked about this today during the sermon. You need to actually look at the person. You need to look at your spouse. So many times, like if I'm sitting with a couple, one one of them is breaking down and they're crying, and the other one is full steam ahead. They're, they the person hasn't e- doesn't even acknowledge that their partner, their spouse sitting next to them is being destroyed and they're full steam ahead. And it's like, just pause, look. And when we're activated and our heartbeat is, is, is going and we feel such a threat, it's, it's, so, it's so interesting that our body responds the same way if our loved one is, is attacking us the same way if we're being mauled by a bear, just exactly the same way. It's just, it's mind-blowing. Uh, because it matters to us a lot, right? It matters to us a lot. So the eye contact is to, is to be able to see how is what I'm saying landing with my partner, right? How is what I'm saying landing with my spouse? And, you know, if you see the, the, the eye roll, if you see the closed posture, if you see the turning away, then you have to stop and attend to that. And here, process is more important than content. So if we're talking about money and I see that, I have to put that conversation aside and then I have to attend to what just, what just happened. Because my spouse is telling me I'm closed off, I'm angry, I'm hurt. And so I have to attend to that. I might, and then you might say something like, it, it looks like uh, you're upset. Something, I, I must have said something to upset you. Are you open to sharing with me a little bit? What's going on? Tell me a little bit more. If we're both upset, uh, if your spouse shows signs that, that he's upset, she's upset, and you're upset, it's absolutely wise to take a break. And sometimes um, it, it ends up being stereotypically that the, the guy wants to take a break and, and the, 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 the woman feels like he's running away from the problem. And so I always tell couples, I'll say, for you, you gotta make sure when you walk away, you're back in 20 minutes, because that's how long it's gonna take you to regulate your mood. And for you, you gotta stop chasing him. Like, let him take his 20 minutes, don't chase after him, let him take his break, and then come back. And when you come back, you start with step one Where's my heart? What's my intention? well, I just need to tell her how, uh, in those 20 minutes, I was thinking of all the reasons why she's wrong, and I'm going to let her have it now. <laughs> Go, b- Come back after the 20 minutes and say, I just checked in with myself. I don't think I'm ready. Give me another 20 minutes. If you think that this is silly Or beneath you or not important I challenge you and I double challenge you to do it better because I know that if you come into it and you sit down and you try to go at it you're gonna walk away miserable you just will Um, so time out let's welcome time out you know I'm overwhelmed I need a minute Sam says 20 So I'm going to take 20 and let's come back and let's try this again. Um, Now we come back and we're sitting together. I'm going to try to finish in in two minutes because I know the kids are coming. Uh, We come back together and we're in this stuck place. I've reviewed all my reasons for the way I feel, the way I feel. She's reviewed all her reasons why she feels the way she feels. The one thing that I need to do is to extend some generous curiosity. It's to be able to say, tell me more about what that means to you. Tell me more about why this is important to you. Help me to understand how it is that you see this. I'll, um, I'll give you an example. When people fight about money, it's never about money. It's about what does money mean to you? What does it mean to you? And usually people can tie it down to values and core values in childhood. And they'll tie it to something so significant. And then even if you disagree with your spouse, you can say, wow, I really appreciate that. I never knew that that's, what, that's why this is so important to you. So generous curiosity. And always if we're seeing our spouse is upset, is just not in a good place. We're going to make it worse if we come from a place of judgment, but we could almost always make it better if we come from a place of generous curiosity. You know, wanting to know more, wanting to, to open ourselves up to learning more about what it is that they're experiencing. And the last part is like, own your stuff. Own your stuff. So your spouse lets you know why they're hurt, and you hear it, You take responsibility. Yes, I see the way that I let you down. I see that I did this wrong. I apologize. I'm sorry. I talked about this last time. Confession helps us practice that and get good at doing that. Because if you never go to confession, you never articulate how broken you are. And these conversations become immensely difficult. But if you are really good at this, then you have no problem saying, "I totally dropped the ball. I, I'm, I, I'm, I was wrong. I was totally out of line. I apologize. My commitment is to try to do this better. And when I forget, please remind me, because my intention is to really wanting to get this right, really wanting to do this better." All right. Um, I mean, I, I want to stop here. Um, and take any comments, corrections if I misspoke. um, If you have any questions, let me know. Yes. So the question is, um, how do I prevent having like knee-jerk reaction of anger with my children, right? So the first comment is, I would like to know that too. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The second thing is, it's sort of going back to the heart. You know, if you wake up and you spend time in prayer and meditation and you feel a sense of gratitude and love, you're so patient with your child. If you're already in a bad place, then anything they do is irritating, right? And so, um, I I, I know there's a lot more that could be said on this, but I bring it back to the heart. If I'm in a good place, I want to be my best to my spouse and my children, right? And and, um, you know, like we'll observe like today I felt like I was so absent in the morning and I had to say to my wife I appreciate everything that you did I I I know that I wasn't there but like we're 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 evaluating and and we're catching ourselves when we're not at our best and we're letting our spouse know hey I I see I wasn't I wasn't there in my best self and and thanks for bearing with me yeah Yeah. Yeah. So, so you have uh, if you're coming home and you're really stressed and uh, you you hear some uh, um, recommendation of of Chick Fil A and all. Um, yeah. You know, like like during the drive home, or or if you get home, if you take five minutes, and and you've communicated with your spouse, this is not me checking out, I just need five minutes to kind of, you know, contain myself, and that thoughtfulness is a really act of love, like I don't want to give you the leftovers, I really want to try to give you my best self, so I just need a few minutes to be able to give you my best self, um, yeah, sometimes we treat our family, we would never treat like our patients, clients, students, the way we treat our family, and it's unfair to them. And so taking time to kind of make sure our heart is in the right place, I think is really helpful. yeah. any any other questions, comments? Sit. Okay, let's pray.